My name is Pat. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in part five of our Flourish sermon series. And when I've been speaking, I've given a couple of messages uh, so far in this series. One of the word pictures that I'd encourage you to think about is to think about as though your life is like a series of garden beds. Now, we do vegetables, mostly at our house, at least on purpose. We have some perennials that keep coming up. And if you're into them and want some new ones, you could come to our house and dig some of ours up. It's really not our thing. We haven't really gotten a knack for that, but we like to have vegetables. So we grow tomatoes and beans and potatoes and beets and asparagus and things like that. And we have different areas for each of those, for each of those crops, each of those vegetables. Maybe you are into flowers, and so you have an aster bed or a lily bed or a place where you have begonias or impatiens or calendulas. I had to look up all those names because I'm not into flowers. But maybe you are. And our experience at our little vegetable garden is that almost every year this happens, that this patch grows really good and that patch isn't as good as it was last year or that patch is unbelievably good and we barely got anything from it last year. And we really aren't a good enough gardener at this point to even explain why that is. Whether it's the conditions, it's probably that. Partly, whether it's where we planted them because we moved them around, I'm not really sure. We might have just got lucky at this point. It might be that. But sometimes some of our garden beds need a little more attention and replenishment than others. I know that for sure. I've learned that much, that sometimes I need to add something extra to make something grow better. I've learned a little bit about that. And that can be like our lives, right? So we have different sections, parts of our lives, now, they're all, it's all one life, but it can be helpful to think about different parts of our lives that are either flourishing and growing and thriving, or areas that maybe aren't thriving as much. And you can think back to other times when actually that area of my life was really thriving, but now I notice that it needs some replenishing. And that can be a helpful way for us to think about our lives, to think about what parts of my life does God want me right now to be giving specific attention to help it grow and thrive. So far, we've talked about our walk with God, and that garden bed, if you will, really affects everything else. We also talked about marriage and singleness, and I actually think that garden bed affects almost everything else as well, including your walk with God. We talked about rest and recreation. We talked about work. This morning, we're going to talk about emotional health. Perhaps as we go through this series, you'll notice that some of the areas we talk about, you feel like are pretty lively. You see fruit in your life and you sense that there's flourishing. Actually, culturally, we just need to do a better job of celebrating that and not just always saying it could be better. Most of us grew up in cultures where it was a little bit like, ah, don't say too many good things or else you might get prideful, right? Don't celebrate too hard. Or maybe if you celebrate too much, you'll jinx yourself and it'll go bad the other way. Actually, it's good to celebrate and recognize, you know what, Lord, thank you for helping this part of my life to be growing and thriving. Here's uh, my, from a, it actually happened this week, although I would say the idea behind this has been mulling it over, but I was talking with a friend, a pastor um, in another state, and we were having a conversation talking about 
I was speaking on emotional health. We talked that came up to that topic, and he said this, and I just said, I'm going to use that this Sunday. Um, he said, emotional health is having the ability to feel your emotions fully without allowing them to control or direct your life. You might think, how in the world do I do both of those? <laughs> if I feel them fully, they pretty much overwhelm and control how I live. Well, I'm contending that actually emotional health is feeling them fully and also not allowing them to direct or control your life. My experience, personally, actually, I'll make a confession. I'm just going to start off this morning. I am not as emotionally healthy as I would like to be. I have more insecurities than I would prefer to have. I have more fear than I would prefer to have. I definitely have more anger and harshness, a tendency towards that, than I would prefer to have. I'm sure that my family would prefer I have. I have less patience, less gentleness, and a little bit less confidence and courage than I would prefer to have. Really, honestly, I am not very comfortable feeling emotions deeply. The second half of that statement makes a lot of sense to me. Here's how I figure out how to not allow your emotions to control or direct your life. Don't feel them. <laughs> Except, you know what I'm learning? If you make that choice like me, and if you're laughing because you're kind of like me, your emotions are controlling and directing your life. They come out sideways. They leak Things that you felt in the past but chose not to go into deeply are connected to responses in the present. I'm going to share some personal examples of how I've noticed that in my life. So in order to be emotionally healthy, we actually do need to feel our emotions fully without allowing them to control or direct our lives. The reason why I would like to spend as little time as possible in the world of emotions is so that I can actually get some things done. If you felt that way, I'm with you. So why am I preaching this sermon on emotional health if I'm not as healthy emotionally as I would like to be? Well, I'm told, I was told by my friend to this week that I, that, and I would consider him to be a wise counselor and several other wise counselors, that having the self-awareness, which I'm just gaining myself, that I'm not as emotionally healthy as I'd like to be is actually a very significant step toward getting more emotionally healthy and mature because usually, and most of my life, I've just ignored that part of my life because I haven't found it convenient to think about or work on. So I'll share some of the things I've learned and some of my struggles throughout this message. Let's ask this question before we get too far. What would a flourishing look like in the area of your emotional health or my emotional health? And I think we can probably agree on this would be a picture of, and it's not, it really, you could apply this to almost every area that we're going to look at in, in this flourishing series. But think about if this passage of scripture, which we've mentioned before, described your emotional health, you probably would say, yes, I think I'd be flourishing. And it's Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those were the descriptors of my emotional health, I'd probably say I'm 
doing pretty good consistently, right? That's maybe a picture we'll come back to at the end that we can use to help us understand if we're on the road to emotional health or not. I'm going to share three counterintuitive truths to emotional health. These are three truths that a part of us will resist and say that can't really be true. But if we embrace them, we actually find that there is truth in there and that I actually am healthier emotionally and spiritually if I embrace them. The first one is found at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 tells the story. The first chapter of Genesis tells the story of creation. Genesis chapter 2 sort of zeroes in on a few more of the details on the sixth day of creation when God made man and woman. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, only man has been created. God is in the process of helping Adam, the first man who was created, realize that it is not good for man to be alone. But before he helps them see that, he gives him an instruction. Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God placed the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Actually, that's connected to last week's message on work. That came before sin entered the world. Work is a gift from God. That was what we were supposed to walk away with last week. It was a gift. God gave the man a gift to tend and watch over the garden. But then the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely from any fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. God was putting the first boundary or limit into humanity's life. Now, out in the country where we live, in our garden, we have this big garden plot. And what I have watched happen every single year throughout the growing season is that the edges of the garden move in. The grass and the weeds push their way into that garden so that actually if I didn't do something about it every single year, and actually I noticed we hadn't done something about it in a while, and I compared and I had about this much garden all the way around the edge that had gotten overtaken by grass from where we had previously planted. If I don't maintain that boundary for four, five, six years, guess what? There's no garden. There's no garden beds. Boundaries are really important. So here is the first counterintuitive truth. Limits can expand my life. The reason it's counterintuitive is because we think they restrict it. Even when you read Genesis 2, 15 and 17, you're probably thinking, or you have at some point in your life, why did God do that? Eat any tree but not this one right here. Why did he X that one off? I need good reasons for it. But I think that we respond that way helps us to notice that we tend to think of limits as restrictive and not as something that can actually expand or cause our lives to flourish more. That's actually the truth about how we often feel. You know what a limit is? It's another gift from God. And here's one that it reinforces. I am not God. That's really a common idolatry that we all have. I am the master of my own universe. I am the king of my own kingdom. No, you're not. I mean, you can believe that for a while. 
it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's really what you're doing is you're setting up a little idol in your life, and I will tell you that every idol that you might worship, everything other than the one true God, will suck the life out of you. You will not flourish. You will not have more life. You will not thrive more. It will take life out of you. Just like the grass creeping in on the boundaries of my garden, you'll find yourself getting siphoned off of productivity, of fruitfulness. Just say this to yourself one time, something like this. Just list some limits in your life. I mean, actually, this is going to be a practical question at the end of this point. I have limited time. I have limited energy. I have limited love. I have limited relational capacity, and mine is different from yours. I have limited finances. I have a limited intellect, even though I like to think I don't. I have limited wisdom, limited truth. I have limited perspective. My age limits me. My career limits me. Where I live limits me. They're all limits. And they prove to me that I'm not God, which is really good. He is, and I'm not. Here's one way that I've practiced um, embracing limits in a new way. A couple of years ago, I decided to think through what is the best time of day for me, and I should do some of my best and most important things during that time. And so I set up some blocks of time that you will never get an appointment with me. And no one, no, n- n- neither will anybody else uh, on most every week. Now it's possible. Actually, I, in order, I didn't do this on purpose, but it just so happened that this last week, during two of the most important blocks of time, four-hour blocks, I ended up, because I couldn't find another way and I had to reschedule several appointments, I scheduled something on both days, just like a one-hour thing in the middle. And it was not as good of a week. (laughs) I was not as productive. Usually what I do with those schedules is I am focused on really doing mostly working on sermons today that I'm preaching upcoming and down the road. And I need to set several hours at a time to do that really effectively. What I have done is I put it into my calendar. So if I say, hey, would you like to get together for lunch sometime? And you might pull out your phone and you look, okay, let's look at this week. If I do that like I'm doing right now, I'll just see that I'm not available for lunch on two days of the week unless you want to eat late lunch at 1 o'clock because I've set this aside. That has actually helped me to stop lying to you and making excuses Because I've just said, this is my limit. I'm limited. I've got to get this stuff done. And if I don't prioritize it, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to feel bad. And actually, I might be mad at you that I scheduled a lunch with you when I shouldn't have done it because I didn't embrace my own limits. You see where emotional health is connected to limits? Doing this, embracing limits, seeing them as a way to expand my life has helped patience. This is really slow. Did you know that patience grows slowly? That you have to have patience to grow in patience? Just like, I wish I could grow. Why can't I be more patient like tomorrow? Just, that's just not how you grow in patience, actually. It's just like really small incremental steps. I've seen it grow slowly as I've embraced my limits. It's also helped me to recognize other people's limits. I, I just am very uneasy. I'm not very offended if someone says I can't meet then or that time. Whereas before, I might have gotten a little bothered. Like, why don't you make yourself available to me? Have you ever felt that way? Can't find a time to get together with someone you want to? It's tempered my expectation of others. And if you've ever had a struggle with 
sending a message to someone on this thing and 30 minutes or five seconds later they haven't responded and you're frustrated? <laughs> Might mean that limits would be really helpful to your emotional health. It's helped me not get frustrated at all. Very little, I should say, when that happens. Here's the practical question for this point. Ask yourself this question. What is one of my limits? What is one of your limits? And how might that limit actually be a gift that I'm not embracing? Maybe it's your age. Maybe it's your life situation. Maybe it's your marital status. Maybe it's your finances or the time or energy that you have. Maybe you don't have as much as you wish to or your relational capacity, whatever it is. And how might, here's a big question. This is, this is a little more introspective. How might God want to meet with you in that limit to reinforce that he's God and you're not and to allow you to lean into that? Okay, so those are the practical questions. They're not practical in how you apply them. They're practical in just asking them of yourself in order to embrace limits. Secondly, John 16.33 is where we're going to look. John 16.33 is the last statement that Jesus makes in a rather long conversation that he's having with his disciples right before he's going to go to the cross. So if you look in your Bible, if you had it open for you, you'd see that in John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He talks about this new foot cleansing. What, what it means, he gives a new command, which isn't really a, a new command. He talks a lot about kind of how he's going to be with the disciples after he leaves. John 15 is the vine and the branches passage. This is all part of one long conversation over supper. He talks about persecution. He talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And right before Jesus prays the longest prayer in the Bible that he is recorded of his, we see John 16, 33. So after all these encouragements that he's giving, it's like his last words before he's going to say goodbye to his disciples and head to the cross. John 16, 33, here's the last verse. It says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows. Take heart because I have overcome the world. I've told you this so that you will have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows. Here's the second counterintuitive truth. Grief and loss are treasures to be mined. What's your relationship like with grief and loss? Do you see it as a potential place to find a treasure? I think Jesus says, it is. Here on this earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. I've told you all this so that you will find peace in me. You think he meant in the middle of those trials and sorrows? I think he did. Loss also reinforces that you and I are limited. When you experience a loss, something that has been taken from you or that you have actually lost, guess what? You're limited. You couldn't keep that thing from happening. It was out of your control. Again, it comes back to a limit. We actually have to work at mining these treasures because we don't usually want to find them. It requires us to feel something fully that we're not excited about feeling. Loss and grief are not really 
exciting. <laughs> They're not really things that we think, oh yeah, God, give me some more of that. Right? They're not. They're not. Psalm 34:18 says this, and it really reinforces what Jesus said in John 16:33. Psalm 34:18 says, "The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed." Is the Lord any closer to you now than he ever will be later? Does God move away from you? I mean, it might seem like that happens, but in actuality, if God is omnipresent, you can't get really closer to God or farther away from God. You can only feel or sense that. Now, relationally, I would say you can get closer or farther away from God. And that's what this is talking about. You will experience relational closeness to God, the psalmist says, that you might not otherwise experience in the midst of a broken heart. There's a song that we ran across over almost 20 years ago, close to that friend of ours passed it on to us. Um, it's called Held by Natalie Grant. It's a, it would be a great one if you want to enter into a deeper understanding of where treasures and grief and loss might be. You could listen to that one. But here's the chorus. It says, this is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. This is what it is to be loved and to know that the promise was when everything fell, we'd be held. It's what Jesus is promising in John 16, 33. You'll have trials and sorrows, but you can have peace in me. Psalm 34, 18. You might experience brokenheartedness, but I will be close to you. And you or someone you know has probably had one of these profound experiences of going through a deep, deep difficulty, a sorrow, a tragedy, an unexpected season of suffering or persecution. And as you're going through it, you wonder, where is God? And I don't really sense his presence. And as you go through it, and then after God leads you through it, you look back and you say, I experienced a closeness with God that I have never experienced because of going through a hard time. I needed him so much deeper. I've had plenty of friends that have had that experience. I've had that experience. Let me just tell you, that is a treasure, friends. You will experience Jesus in the valley in a way you cannot experience him on the mountain. I'm not, I didn't come up with that. That's somebody else that said that a long time ago. You, you just can't. When, when you don't have any control and sorrow is overwhelming you, Jesus is present to you in a way that it won't, he will not, you will not be able to experience if you are in a place where life is going well and you are thankful for all the joys and goodness in your life and, it's, and your experience is that I'm not experiencing loss and grief. But he wants us to experience him in both. Jesus was described in Psalm 53, 3 as someone who was despised and rejected, and I've always loved this description, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Now, if you and I, I'm here today because I really want to follow Jesus and figure out how to follow him through all of life, and if that's your desire too, you may have to experience some of what Jesus did, is to get acquainted with sorrow, with deep grief. Those are treasures. There's treasures to be found there, whether it's a big loss or a small loss, a deep valley, a small valley, just a disappointment, an everyday disappointment, or 
a shattered dream, a challenge you're facing, or maybe a heartbreak, a discouragement, or a betrayal, Jesus is ready to meet you in those in a way that you can't meet him in the really, really good times. There's a way to meet God in the really, really good times. Celebrate those. But he wants to meet us in all of life. And so here's the practical step that I'll give you toward emotional health on this, on this one. We've, we've been at varying degrees of trying to practice this at our home, Andre and I, with our kids. Um, we did, a, we did, did it in this way with this, these questions a couple of weeks ago. It was really helpful. Ask the question, what was your worst part of the day? What was your worst part? Why was it so bad? No, this is important to talk about out loud, so it's really helpful to do this with somebody. If you don't have anybody, maybe you write it down in a journal to process it in words. Now, here's the really scary question, if you're like me. How did it make you feel? And if your feeling vocabulary list is short, my hint is get a list and have it in front of you to help you identify what you're feeling. Because if you're like me, you have a hard time identifying what you're feeling a lot of the time. So we have four or five different emotion word lists and soul word lists and wherever I can find them. If I find one, I grab it onto it. Someone in one of our home groups had like an emotion wheel or something they passed on. That was really helpful too. You can look them up yourself. And now here's the last question that you might be wondering, why is he talking about this? This is maybe sounds like psychobabble. It's not. What emotions in the past could this be connected to? If you're experiencing fear, it is helpful, and this is one way to make sure your emotions don't control your life, to identify if, if there's a time in the past when you had this similar feeling. Especially if you're kind of an emotional stuffer and you don't usually feel things very well. What I have learned is that I, didn't, I haven't always felt things well throughout my life, early life especially. Probably not, if I'm really honest, probably not until the last five years. Have I really been making efforts to feel things fully the way that I think is healthy? And what happens is I have an emotional reaction that I haven't processed, but really what I've discovered is that there's bits and pieces of other things that I haven't processed that are connected to that. I'm not really angry about, let's just say, the garbage in my front yard that my dog keeps digging out of the woods. But there's sort of some maybe control, a time when I didn't feel like I was in control, and I had some anger about that that I'm not really processed, that the reason why I might kick the dog, which I have rarely done in real life, only very occasionally when she's really bad, and I have not fully processed my anger, please don't call the Humane Society. But I've realized that that's part of it. And not every emotion is, okay? So don't think that everything you feel is connected to the past. I'm not suggesting that. But if you are someone who has that hard time feeling deeply, this is actually helpful to ask because it helps you to be in control of your responses and you understand what you're actually responding to isn't just what's in front of you today. It actually is sort of a trained response because you haven't done it well in the past. Secondly, let's focus on the good, okay? Don't just sit there and wallow. What was the best part of your day? You can do it in either order, by the way. What was your best part of the day? Why was it so good? And how did it make you feel? And what emotions in the past could this be connected to? This is really helpful, too, to have an understanding 
and really identify why it's such a good part, why, what's really feeling. It's just helpful if you are. And I'm just going to tell you guys, you all need help with your emotions. Almost all of us have this very similar ethnic heritage backgrounds, and very few of them were really good at emotions. So if you're trying to tune me out, I'm just telling you, as your pastor, you need help with this. You're, not, you're like me, so I need help too. We need help. This is a practice, and think of it as a practice. Like if this is like, oh my goodness, this would be so awkward. It, not just talk about my good days, but how it makes me feel. Like that is so awkward. Why would I do? I feel that way too. It is, okay? It is to talk about it. But it's practicing to help us feel fully so that we're not controlled by our emotions and we can rather be controlled by the Spirit. So that's why the last question, what emotions in the past could this be connected to? Uh, We read a really great book, Andre and I, still come back to it. It's called How We Love by Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And here's why she says we need to ask about the past is because sometimes it is as though the past is flooding emotionally into the present and a feeling memory that we haven't processed. And that kind of memory can be rather overwhelming because, and here's why, if you wonder why sometimes an emotion that's coming out of you is way stronger than it should be, Sometimes it's because we respond as we did when we were children. And we haven't really figured out how to process that fully. And sometimes as kids, we didn't actually really express what would have been helpful to express. And so then it comes out as adults. And you're like, why in the heck am I yelling at my kids over this little thing? Well, it might be something that's inside of you that God wants to go to work with. This is another way that we can feel fully without letting our emotions control us. Here's the last point, and I'll only be able to spend a small amount of time on this. You can put 1 Corinthians 13 up there. And just notice that in this passage, it's not the whole passage, but it's a passage that describes love. It says what love is. Love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, isn't boastful, doesn't, not arrogant, not rude, not self-seeking, not irritable, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. You'll notice that almost all of those are action, Right? Or they lead to action. It takes effort to be patient. It, you have to be kind as an act. It's not just something that you feel inside or else someone else doesn't know that. The third counterintuitive point, and this one maybe isn't as counterintuitive, but it sure we can get overwhelmed by our circumstances. Here it is. My reactions are more significant than my circumstances. Or how I respond to my circumstances is more important than what is actually happening to me. Love, those responses, are my job. Now, what's happened to me isn't always my job. Sometimes you make a dumb mistake and you're hurting or you're frustrated or you're angry, and it's your own fault. I tried to kick the dog. I hit the brick. My foot hurts. Now I'm angry about that. That's my fault. That's not the dog's fault for moving. That's my fault. But I'm responsible for how I respond to that. You and I are always responsible for that. So how you and I can manage our reactions and our attitudes and emotions when a circumstance produces intense feelings, that's my practical question. Put that up there. How can I do that? I mentioned this in our ACT series, and this is just tied into what I just talked about with the feeling thing about what's your best and worst part of the day. Name your feeling. If you can't, if you can't get past mad sad or glad, get a list. 
okay? Get more descriptive than that. I mean, that's a good start, but get, pat, get, get a list. Name your specific feelings, not just crabby, not just happy. Get past that, okay? Get more specific. Get underneath it. And by the way, if you're angry, definitely use the list because anger, my friends, is a secondary emotion. There's always other emotions underneath it that are causing us to feel angry. Like fear is often one of them that there's something that I haven't identified. So get a list. And then own it, claim it. Name it, claim it, tame it, and aim it. Just put them all up there quickly. So you claim it. That's what I'm really feeling. If you explore them honestly and understand if there's anything past, maybe earlier in the day or last week or last month or three years ago or a decade ago that's connected to what you're feeling, that helps you to tame it, right? You don't react emotionally in a way that's connected to something else in the past. You just stay in the present where you are right now, and then you can aim it. So back to fruit of the Spirit. Ask this question after you go through that. Is this feeling, or my understanding of it right now, directing me toward the fruit of the Spirit? Understanding it more thoroughly. If I'm being directed toward the fruit of the Spirit, I can probably trust that feeling. If I'm not, I might need to ask myself the question and be suspicious of the feeling, is there something that I'm not believing that is true, that I'm believing that is not true? Maybe a lie about God, about myself, about the situation, about this other person. Because if I'm being led away from the fruit of the Spirit, it may be something that I haven't adequately owned it or tamed it or aimed it in the right direction. So, closing, which of these truths is leading you to embrace, might God be leading you to embrace so that you can flourish emotionally, so that you can be more healthy? Is one of them stand out that limits can expand your life, embracing them, that grief and loss are treasures to be mourned, or that your reactions and your responses are more significant than your circumstances? Maybe let God speak to you about that. Let's pray. We're going to sing a closing song. Worship team, if you would come on up. You want to stand with me as we close? Let's bow before the Father. Thank you for who you are. We can trust that you're good. That you have good intentions toward us. You didn't make a mistake when you created emotions. And you made us emotional. And I pray that we would follow your Spirit's leading, enable us to feel our emotions fully, not to stuff them, not to pretend like they're not there, so that they might not control or direct us, that we take responsibility for our reactions to things, that we would deal with them before you and before some trusted friends, our spouse, a roommate, a sibling, that can help us get through the weeds. What we want to experience is your life coming through us, God. And sometimes how we deal with emotions, that stops it up. And we want to experience more of you in us and coming out of us. Pray that you'd lead us this morning and how we can do that better in the area of our emotional health. Thank you for the chance to be here. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.